So I called this editor who I'd liked and I said, you told me that if I ever had an idea for books for young people that I should call you. But I said, I know this is a terrible idea, but it's in my head. And so will you meet me at this bar? I went and I met her and I told her, the, I was like, okay, there are these three kids. There's a terrible count who like wants the fortune that their parents left behind. They're stuck in a house and then they're going to, every book, they're going to run to a new place and the count is going to come after them. And she was like, I love that idea. And I felt super embarrassed because I was like, she's a lightweight. That's the only explanation is that like... <laughs> And then in the morning, she was like, you know what? I still like this idea. So I wrote a little thing up. And then Charlotte called me and said, we have an offer for four books. Yeah. I was like, what? It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. Does it matter how badly you got beaten badly? Be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, the better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Disheartened by the 37 rejection letters in his back pocket, Daniel was shocked when a hasty bar pitch landed him with a $40,000 publishing deal. After all, he was still relatively unknown, and his children's story was odd, to say the least. What kind of kid would want to read a faux gothic novel about three orphans with a bloodthirsty relative out for their inheritance? If this plot is sounding familiar, you may have heard of Daniel Handler before. Or should we say, Lemony Snicket? Despite Daniel's slow start in the publishing industry, he has since sold over 70 million copies of his books and has become a household name. His literary work has also spawned countless film and TV spinoffs, most recently the 2017 award-winning Netflix show, A Series of Unfortunate Events, starring Neil Patrick Harris. But before Count Olaf ever entered the picture, before he spent months writing in a dusty college basement, Daniel started like many other writers do, with a book in his hand. I'd love to start at the beginning of your journey. What kind of like, like what was your relationship with reading and books it? in general and do you remember like you know some of the first books you picked up and and read uh i do uh i was a deeply ravenous and enthusiastic reader um i grew up in a house that had all kinds of books my parents didn't care what book i picked up from the shelf and tried to read so i read i read many things before i could possibly have understood them and I lived with a pretty good library in walking distance. So when I was really little, I would walk with my dad to the library. And as I grew older, I would walk by myself to the library. And um, the library was an even greater place for exploration. And I liked the way reading books when I was young made me feel that kind of magical space you get into where you're reading a book when you're young. And it's like, you're kind of a hero or like, what if the hero had a friend and it was you? And like, when you're into a book, you kind of carry it with you and you blend other stories with it. You know, it's almost, you just have a kind of role-playing experience or like a fan fiction experience. that's like going on in your head all the time. That's what I really liked. And um, so I met a couple of authors when I was young at the library. They had little events where authors came and I decided that that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be that from a really young age. And could you tell me maybe a little bit about like one of those encounters 
with an author? Like, was there what, like, do you remember if there was like a specific author that you met and you're like, okay, like this, this is, this is what I want. This is, this is what I aspire, uh, uh, want to aspire to. Yeah. When I was young, I met Marilyn Sachs, who's a, was a children's author. Um, and she came to the library uh, near my house and I went and saw her and she did a really great presentation where she showed rough drafts of books that she was working on and she showed illustrations from different editions. You kind of got a glimpse of the world of what making a story all day long felt like. And that was really cool for me. Very exciting. And I, and uh, there weren't many people at the event, uh, if memory serves, and I had a million questions for her, and she took me super seriously. That's what I remember. <laughs> really? she, Wait, how old yeah. are you? I wish I could know. I want to say like eight or nine. Okay. And I told her that I also wanted to be an author, and she had a bunch of questions for me uh, about, she said, oh, do you have trouble getting started? Do you have trouble sticking with something? Do you have trouble with endings? Do you have trouble with characters? Like, how do you do this? She had a bunch of questions for me that I felt like I had to answer. And I think that was really the very beginning of being like, okay, if you want to do this, you got to figure it out. You know, like you can't have no answer. If you say you're a writer and someone says, oh, what are you working on? You say like, not really anything. That's not, no one's going to think you're a writer. So I, I think that was the beginning of understanding that it was something you did all day long and not just kind of loving books. Right. You know? Yeah. So what were the stories that you like, were there stories that you started to tell um, and started to write? You know, my first, whatever you would call it were three or four sentence stories. They were really weird. They were often pretty dark. Um, because that's what I was interested in. I was, I was, you know, imitating um, kind of folk tales and fairy tales and monster stories and stuff. I liked stuff where something really exciting was happening. And so uh, I was interested in stories like that. And I, and I still am. I mean, I'm, uh, I would like to say that my taste is more mature now, but I mean, I'm, I'm interested in stories with dramatic things happening. I think that's what makes a good story. As you went through college, were you, were you realizing how hard it was? And also were there any like mentors that you had during college that kind of like, Hey, this is like, this is a hard thing, but maybe, maybe here's a path where you could do what that, like that, that, that fiction writing that you want. Uh, it was my first semester. And I, so I took other classes. I didn't take any writing classes and, but there was a dinner that they gave for people who are interested in literature and writing. Uh, and so I think they have a bunch of them. And like, if you're a student who was interested in that, you got one. So I went to one and I sat next to this writer I'd never heard of, Kit Reed. We lost her a few years ago. And she said, I teach this writing class where you turn in 10 pages of work every week and you meet with me individually and you go over it. And there's a, it's, there's about six or seven people in the class and we meet once at the beginning to just kind of say the rules. And we meet once at the end, that's kind of a party, but like mostly you meet with me alone. And I thought I want to take that class. So I took it, I took it twice. And then I worked with her more kind of individually. And when it was time to sign up for our like 15, 20 minute slot, 
to meet with her, I took the last one because we met in her kitchen. And I thought, if I take the last one, we're just going to continue to hang out. And that's what happened. And uh, she was a tremendous teacher. And one of the things that was really great about her was that she knew best-selling authors. She knew all these people, and she wasn't snobby about any of it. She really, she had a deep love of like what a good story was and what good language was. And she was encyclopedic in what she could recommend. So if you brought her a story and you're like, I'm trying to do this, she would say like, it sounds like you're trying to do like, read some Mariel Spark, do a little, go over there. Like read a little Robert Heinlein, read, read a little Raymond Chandler, read a little Toni Morrison. And as a result, it was a lot of practice of the stuff of writing of kind of sentences and paragraphs. But there was also just this sense of like that writing is a wide open tradition and that there's endless ways of participating. Yeah. Were you more optimistic as, as she like showed you all these avenues? Yeah. So she and her husband, uh, Joseph Reed, they're both gone now. They live together in this house uh, right on campus and they, he was a, an American studies and film uh, professor, and he was also not a snob. And as a result, they had all of these students that they taught over the years. Their household was full of kind of non-snobbish, creative people working in all kinds of fields. And that was a real amazing education for me. Focusing on the the fellowship that you won and how you even found out about that. Because I feel like that was... That, that fellowship is something that really kickstarted a lot of, uh, you know, what, what would become your career. Um, so uh, I'd love to talk about how that came to be and how do you even found out about that? Uh, well, um, I t- at the beginning of my senior year in college, I went to Kit Reed and who I'd already been studying with. And I said, I need to tell you, I need you to tell me if I'm good enough to do this. Just tell me. And she was like, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> I think she was, kind of, she was kind of depressed because she'd like shown me so many paths. And then I was like, I need to tell, like, I need you to tell me my future. Am I good enough or not? And she said, you have to figure out if you really want to do this because writing, you got to write all day long. So she said, what I would do is try to find a job where you can get the most amount of time alone to write and figure out if you like. I looked at uh, the listings at Wesleyan University where I was, and there was a prize you could, there was a thing you could apply for where you could live in the basement of this house and this basement apartment of this huge house where they had kind of readings and performances and things like that. And you had to kind of be like their cater waiter. And then I also applied for like a little writing grant that the English department gave out, which was, I don't mind sharing with our audience, $1,000. And so I had, I had free lodging and I had $1,000 and that was like my plan. Uh, it, it was, I, I woke up in the morning and I would write for as long as I could. And then mo- a lot of evenings I had work called. So I had to go upstairs and like sometimes there'd be a little dinner I'd, be the waiter. I mix drinks for people. Um, and yeah, I had a couple of other little gigs that helped me buy groceries and stuff, but I was really living like, you know, in a, a, a broke 
yet privileged space of living in like this free apartment at a fancy university, but I had no money. Um, and I figured out that I really liked it. I really, really liked working, working all day long. I mean, I was writing, I think probably 10 or 11 hours a day. Um, I was working on a book that was never published. Um, and Kit was being as gentle as possible. She was saying to me, you know, you're learning so much about writing a novel. This is really great. And a lot of people write a novel that they throw away. Um, and so I wrote and rewrote and wrote and rewrote. And then I realized that she was right. Um, that I had, I was polishing this novel that I'd, had helped me learn how to write novels, but wasn't good. Was it hard to come to the realization that this novel would never be something that you could release? Yeah, but in some ways, but actually what really drew me out was that I had another idea for a novel. And I started to think, gosh, if I weren't still working on this novel, I could work on this idea over here. And so... Uh, yeah, I put the book aside and I started working on the novel that became The Basic Eight, which was my first published novel. Um, I want to drill on this because first published novel is a big deal um, for any writer. And I, I, I want to know how your approach to this novel changed from the practice novel, right? Because like you've learned so much, you've developed all these skills. Now it's like, OK, like here's like the real one. Um, and, and so, so how did the, your process for the basic eight differ from your, your, your first novel that you tried to write? I mean, I quote the writer, Michelle T a lot. She's a writer I love and a great person. Uh, and she always says about writing, you got to make a mess and then you got to clean up. And I think most people are good at either one or the other. And, um, I'm really good at cleaning up. And in my first, in my practice novel, I cleaned it up so much that like it was boring and useless. I I kind of killed all the energy out of it because I was busy like making it conform to some weird idea of perfection in my head. And so when I started to think like, hey, I could write this other book instead, that was pretty magical because then I just was like, well, this is going to be like, just do whatever you want. So then I started writing I had hardly any outline. I had hardly any plan. I just wrote it pretty crazily. And then I tried to get it slowly under control. And that was a big, that was kind of the first time I made a mess and clean up. And now I like, I love the part where I'm making a mess and I love the part where I'm cleaning up. But back then I was, I was kind of afraid to just follow my own intuition. And so I just remember I was like, well, in a diary, you put all kinds of stuff. So I just started putting all this stuff, which eventually I cut. But I mean, I put like lists and poems and like, you know, it was like hundreds of pages. I would just write, 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 anything that would get thrown there in the diary. And I slowly figured out kind of the real plot. And I started cutting stuff that was like not into it. Uh, yeah, but that was a real uh, it, it was a delight to write that book. It was really, really fun. What is the process to even get published? It's a crapshoot is the short answer. Um, if you want to publish with a with a with a corporate house with a corporate with a mainstream publishing house, which is I think most people's vision of getting published, um, 
you need a literary agent. And I didn't know anything about literary agents. And now, and this was like before the internet, like now if you start Googling, like, how do I find a literary agent? You're going to get some advice. I had no idea. And, uh, so, and then, um, a friend from high school, her father was a, a writer about psychology, about like Freud and stuff. And um, he had a literary agent. And so I wrote her basically. And I said, I don't know anything about anything. Here's a little bit of my book. Uh, I don't even know if you're like, you're the kind of literary agent that does this. Like, I basically was like, please help me. I don't, like, either be my literary agent or, like, find me a literary agent. I just need, like, I'm so lost and please help me. And she called it. And, I, like, I thought she was, like, pranking me. Like, I thought it was, like, my girlfriend or someone messing with me. Like, she was like, hi, it's Charlotte Sheedy, who's my, she's still my literary agent. She said, hi, it's Charlotte Sheedy. And like, I really like your book. And actually I will be, I mean, in New York, but I'm we'll be coming to San Francisco in a little bit. Do you want to meet? And I really have this like, who is this really? <laughs> like, who's messing with me? Cause it's not funny. And, and because I had written her not even knowing, I didn't understand anything. So I didn't even, I didn't even know what it meant. So I said, sure, I'll meet with you. And so, uh, she, we met, uh, downtown at her hotel at the bar. And I think I was 24, 23. And, um, I didn't know anything. And like, I, uh, uh, like when I was in college, uh, all my friends were like, nerdy dancers who like ceramics and I didn't, so I didn't like party much in college and I didn't have any kind of glimpse of like the outside world. I didn't, I didn't have a real job. And so the idea of like, we will meet and discuss something in a hotel bar seemed crazy. I was like, how do you even, what do you do? Like, what do I wear? Like, what do I do? And so, you know, I remember I had like the nicest shirt that I owned and I, and I went there and I, I sat down with her and she said, do you like old fashions? And I had no idea what an old fashioned was. Like it is a cocktail, but not only did I not know what kind of cocktail it was, I had no idea what she was talking about. And so I said, yes, of course. Like I, like I had a, like, I was like, yeah, of course. Obviously, I like old fashions. And I remember that I was like, is this a contractual arrangement? Is this like some kind of professional stance? Is it like a sandwich? I had no idea when it, when it was. And then they brought two old fashions on a tray. And I remember I was like, it's a drink. Everything's going to be okay. Like, everything's okay. This is the right answer. <laughs> and so um, she encouraged me. I took about another six months, I think, to finish a draft of the book. So what she's saying, like she would shop your book around? She said, I remember that I was like, is it true that I can get money when I haven't finished the book? And she was like, not in your case, no. Like some people can, not you though. And uh, she said, you know, finish it and we'll see where we're at. And so I finished it or I finished, you know, I thought I finished it. I got a draft and uh, I gave it to her. How many, how long after the meeting uh, with the old fashions was this finished book? I think it was like six months. Is six months a short time, a long time? I mean, 
it's uh, it, some people take years. Some people can do it in no time whatsoever. It just depends on the book and the person. But I mean, for me, you know, that was like somebody, you know, it was like a glamorous person saying like, I'll go out with you if you cut your hair. You know, you're like, I'm going to cut my hair today. And uh, I worked really hard and I, um, I finished it and I sent it to her and she said, that she was like, okay, so here's the deal. We're going to send it to this person over here. We're going to, I'm going to call this person. Another person is on maternity leave. So I want it. And I was slowly like, oh my God, I'm represented by her. Like, I didn't know it. I thought she might be like, good try kid. But instead I was like, oh, we're t- like, we're talking about work. I think it's important for this story to know the punchline is that it took her six years to sell this book. So, like, I was in a glamorous office being told that, like, everything was going to go my way. And I was years from being published. And I also like to be sure and tell people that uh, I that the money I got for my first novel was the least amount of money my literary agent had ever negotiated for a piece of fiction. And so not only did it take forever, but, like, it took forever. And then I got a check that was like not time to quit your job or anything. What are what are you thinking about yourself as a writer? And what are you thinking about in terms of like 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 what you should be working on, what you should be doing? I was also still in touch with Kit. She was still kind of mentoring me and she basically was like, "Well, do you want to do it or do you want to do it?" Like, you're waiting, like write another book. And so I did. Um And so actually when my first novel was sold, it was two novels that were sold to be published a year apart uh, for $10,000 for both books. So, you know, after six years of her working with me, about five years of really intensely trying to sell the book, I had $5,000. How are you keeping your spirits up? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was really, really hard. But what I liked most was doing it. I really, really, really liked writing. And in fact, I was living in New York when she sold the novel, but I didn't like um, the competition and the kind of uh, surveillance of being someplace where everybody's a writer. And so uh, what I really, really loved was writing. I didn't like going to a party in which people were like, hey, have you sold that book yet? That was like horrifying. What I liked was working. And so I just kept working. Yeah. When did you find out that some, some good things were, were happening or in the works? I mean, it really depends. Uh, I sold those two books for $10,000 and uh, that was the year that I got married, 1998. Well, can, you, can you tell me about like the actual, like pu- the, the publishing and the selling, like, like when you found out about that, how it felt like all, all that. I mean, it was, it was a slow, it was slow. I do remember, but I mean, it, it was, my literary agent said, well, there's a editor. She's expressed interest. She's at a, like, I can show her these books. Like when you have coffee with her, I had coffee with her. I liked her. And she was just like, you, you know, your books are like strange and dark. So it's going to be tough because I, the editor have to go in to the other editors and sit in a room and kind of tell them that this is what we should, we should be publishing. Um, so like, wish me luck at my big meeting, you know, and then she'd like go into the big meeting. She'd call me and she'd say, it went okay, but like, we can't really make a move on it until we have this other meeting. It was like that. And then, 
so there were several things like that. And then my literary agent called me and said, so, you know, this is the money. And, um, and it was $10,000. It was, well, it was $10,000 over the course of finishing these two books. So it was going to be $5,000 minus my agent's commission. Like once I got it and I was really broke, I had been working. I mean, I'd been just basically freelancing and doing all kinds of kind of boring work for little money. And I was living in New York, which was just like excruciatingly expensive, really expensive and really stressful. Um, and I remember just thinking it was one thing to be broke when my dreams aren't coming true, but now if my dream is coming true and I'm still broke, I gotta, like, we gotta figure out what this is. And so a thing that happened was that because the basic eight was set in a high school, my agent had put me in touch with editors who were doing books for young people. So I met with several editors and one of them I really, really liked and she said, we can't publish this book about high school. We can't publish it for young people. It's you write well about young people, but we can't publish this for young people. And she said, if you ever have an idea for something for writing for children, and I was like, I have no idea for writing for children. I write like weird, dark stories. I have like, I don't, but I had tried to work on my third novel, which was going to be a mock Gothic novel. It was going to be like a, take place in an old creaky castle and have terrible things happening. It was going to be really long, like Gothic novels were. And the working title in my head was a series of unfortunate events. And I was having a lot of trouble with it. And some of the trouble was that it was just like financial stress. And I was like, what are you doing? But some of the trouble was that like a typical Gothic novel is a woman marries a mysterious guy. She lives out in the middle of nowhere in a castle and there's all kinds of mysterious stuff going on. So I was trying to gender flip it. I had a young man who was like whisked away to a house in the middle of nowhere. And, but I was like, why doesn't he just get a taxi? I was trying to set it on the present day. And I just was like, I don't believe that this guy would stay in this house. Freaky stuff is going on. And like, okay, he doesn't have any money or he's married or whatever, but like, you can get out of there. And it's, I mean, I still think of it now. Sometimes there's like horror movies, you know, where they're like, one night the bed levitated and the next night, and you're like, the next night? What? <laughs> I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, you don't have any money, but like, call a friend, crash at the friend's house. And, boy, there goes. and so this was kind of the same thing. And when this editor had said, if you have any ideas about something that would happen for young people, I thought, oh my God. If this guy were a child, and I was like, or three children, so they could talk to each other, you wouldn't wonder why they were stuck in the house, because they're children. And so then I started rewriting the whole idea of the book. But in my head, I was like, this is still a dark, terrible story that no one will be interested in. So I called this editor who I'd liked and I said, you told me that if I ever had an idea for books for young people that I should call you. And I said, I know the professional thing is that I should like write up a little treatment, a little summary of what I want and like a, maybe a, a chapter or two as a sample. But I said, I know this is a terrible idea, but it's in my head. And so will you meet me at this bar? Because I will tell you my idea and then you'll tell me it's terrible and then we'll just be at a bar. So it won't it, it won't be like a real professional thing. This was my bright idea. And so I went and I met her and I told her that I was like, OK, there are these three kids. There's a terrible count who like wants the fortune that their parents left behind. 
they're stuck in a house and then they're going to every book, they're going to run to a new place. And the count is going to come after them. And she was like, I love that idea. And I felt super embarrassed because I was like, she's a lightweight. That's the only explanation is that like, she had a drink and she's just like a million people in bars, you know, they're like, that's a great idea. idea. I remember that I was like, are you going to take a taxi? And she was like, I'm too broke for a taxi. And I was like, I'm too broke too. And so we like walked different directions. And I remember like all the way just being like, I can't believe like, she's going to call me in the morning and be like, I'm so sorry that I told you that like, I would buy this idea. Obviously I'm not going to buy the idea. And I would say, I'm so sorry. I made you go to a bar. And then in the morning she was like, you know what? I still like this idea. And I was like, okay. So she said, you do though, you're going to have to write something up. So I wrote a little thing up and I wrote like a chapter kind of that I was working on. And then I sent it to my literary agent because how the edit goes is that you send it to the literary agent and then she sends it to the editor. So my literary agent said like, what is this? And I was like, I know, I know, I know. It's obviously a terrible idea. Like no one wants children on the run from something terrible all the time. But she said she liked it. So here it is. We're just going to give it to her. She gave it to her. And then Charlotte called me and said, we have an offer for four books. Four books? Yeah. I was like, what? And she was like, yeah, we have an offer for four books. How? How? Why? So this editor was new at the publishing house and the publishing house was like, we need a million new series for young people. Like go sign it. No one's going to get very much money. We're going to do a lot of them and we hope they work. And so I had an offer for $40,000 for four books. Wow. And I just remember that I was like, I can do, I can do that. $40,000. I'll get 20,000 up front. And then I'll be being paid to write. Like I won't, I can live off that in the time it'll take me to write and get the, how long do you think it will take you? I mean, I don't know how long I thought it would take me, but I wrote, that was 99 and I wrote two books. I wrote the first two that year. There's still uncertainty, I can imagine, because the books have to sell for you to continue working with a publisher, right? I mean, there's always uncertainty, right? But I mean, that's kind of like what there is across the course of your life. And I often parallel it to a relationship because when I started trying to write novels, I had a girlfriend and then she became my wife. And it's like, okay, you get uh, someone to date you. You're interested in someone, you get them to go out with you. Like, that's a triumph, but like, then you got a relationship. Like a relationship has its own challenges. You got to do that. If it turns into a marriage, if you're like raising a kid, if you're buying a house, if you're doing all the things that you might do, like everything's a new challenge. You don't get to be like, oh, I got her to date me. So everything's cool now. Like we're, we're all, I'm all done. I never have to worry again. Like that's not how it works. And so similarly with books, I mean, with any professional life, there's going to be continued worries, but they published these books. The books slowly began to do better. I mean, it was a, it was a slow journey of them doing well. Yeah. What, what was the, the updates that they gave you? The money that they give you when you sign a publishing contract is in advance. That means that you get a percentage of every book that they sell, but they're paying you some of that money up front. And most books never earn out their advance. 
So you get your $10,000 or whatever, and then you don't get any more money because the book didn't sell enough to make profit for you on top of that $10,000. So one thing that happened crazily with me was that we sold some foreign rights in some different countries. In England, we sold right away, in France, and in Germany, in Italy, I think. And that the advances from those publishers earned out my American advance. Interesting. And this was before the book was published. So suddenly I knew that if one person bought my book, I got a, I, I got some money. No one I knew had ever earned out an advance and I'd earned it out before it was published. Now, mostly that was because it was a really small advance. <laughs> I just remember being like, so if I like just get a friend of mine to buy a book, I'm going to get a little bit of money. Like I like maybe not a lot, but like I, I, the idea that like I was in a, I could profit actually not just get the money from the publisher, but continue to get money was pretty amazing. And how much money are you getting per book? I mean, it really, it depends on how much they're selling the book. It depends on the percentage that your agent negotiates for you. So it really depends. It's a small amount. Yeah. They sent me on a little book tour for the, when the first two books were published, hardly anyone showed up, but I did meet like a girl who was already obsessed with them, which <laughs> I, like I met her and she was just like, I have to know this and I have to know this and I have to know this. And I remember thinking this is a stranger, you know, I, for years I'd published little things and written little things and like gave a reading where my friends go and then they tell me I'm funny or something. And that's nice. But I remember that I was like, no one made her like this book. Like she's not yeah. being polite. To me. She's really into it. She came to this bookstore in Atlanta. So I remember I was like, success like you know <laughs> like for my first success was like i'll get money even if it hardly sells at all and then my second success was i'm beginning to meet a few readers who are super into this and it built up that way for like two years i would say that like the my definition of success was expanding because different things were happening with the books and then also i was continuing to write them and i was really really loving it and so that was the beginnings of feeling like, oh, there's enough money coming in that we're like, I don't have an office job. I'm really liking what I'm doing and I'm meeting people who are responding to my work. So that felt like a trifecta. Could you lead me up to 2004 and how the success of the books were doing up until that point? And then, you know, maybe some things that added fuel to the fire of the success of these books for a while the books were super popular in canada and not particularly popular in america and so i would do these book tours where i would go up to toronto vancouver halifax and there'd be like 200 people there and then i'd go back across the border and go to like seattle wisconsin and there'd be like 10 people there and I remember I was like, am I going to be like, you know, there's like those bands that are popular in Japan. <laughs> they're American or they're British, but like no one knows them at home, but they're really popular someplace else. I was like, is that, that's a weird slot to be in. I guess I'll be in that slot. I mean, media was a little different then. There was a story in the New York Times Magazine. There was a story in USA Today. There was that kind of media exposure. And then, but I mean, it was just really growing. There were really great booksellers and librarians who were active in getting these books to young people. Yeah, I remember my scholastic book fairs, 
Like, uh, like that. I think that's when I first heard of a series of unfortunate events is like, everyone was like pining over after them. I mean, that is elastic book fairs are how a lot, a lot of books get launched. It's pretty powerful. I'm not shy about telling those stories necessarily, but that part always felt a little manic on top of what was actually important to me. Like what felt really powerfully important was that I was really loving it, that I was meeting readers and I was reading more and more of them who were really responding, who were really enthusiastic. And certainly that like I didn't have to get a job. And But the rest of it always felt a little manic. What do you mean by manic? I guess just like, it's like, there's a lot of adrenaline if you're on TV or there's like a picture of you in a magazine or whatever. Like, but it's not, it's not for me anyway, it's not emotionally fulfilling. It's, it's, it's kind of weird. And then also there's just a sense of like that. It's not, that's not happening for you. That's happening for like the interests of media. People who put that together are kind of, you know, it's like that reporter is not particularly excited about you. They are, they write profiles for a living. So they're writing this profile. So it's a, it's right. a weird exchange. And so that was always kind of curious is that sometimes when huge media stuff would happen, people would be like, this must be a dream come true. And I was like, well, this is a dream. Come, like writing <laughs> and not having a lousy job. That's a dream come true. Like having my picture in USA Today is great because it's helping me write for a living. But like the actual, I don't like to read a news yeah. article about me. That's not, yeah. I don't like reading that. It's just kind of like, okay, like, you know, this is showing that I can at least do this maybe for a couple more years. You know, it's like adding time to the clock of I can do this full time. Exactly. Yeah. I'm curious how you felt about exploring that and using your, your, your source material to explore another medium. I mean, how it came about was that pretty early on a series of unfortunate events was optioned for film, but then not, there wasn't, nothing was really done. Which happens a lot. People's books get optioned for when nothing happens. And then because of the kind of accompanying publicity, then people started to say, oh, this is something we should make. But I think the main difference for me between writing a book and working in film or television particularly is that those are, they're really expensive medium. It's really expensive. And so the people who are in charge of it are in charge of a lot of money and they're nervous and scared. It's just harder to deal with. Like, I mean, I always do kind of a lot of self hypnosis cause I don't like to think about how much money those things cost. I just have to be like, it's not your money. Forget the amount. It doesn't matter. And it wasn't like that money was about to be spent on something noble. It wasn't like they were like, we can't decide whether to build a children's hospital or make your movie. That isn't how it goes. And also just for context, that movie cost $125 million to make. Okay. See, there you go. I totally forgot. I knew it was something outrageous. Yeah. It's outrageous. All right. Yeah. It's between 125 and 140 million. Like that's a, right. that's a huge budget movie. That's like, uh, yeah. it's, it's a, like they're making a blockbuster. Like this is not some indie movie that they're making right. from your book. And so think about if someone gave you $140 million and you had to like carry it in a duffel bag across campus you know, and they were like, none of it can go missing. And so, like, when you're walking across campus with that duffel bag, if someone's like, hey, you want to meet for lunch? You're like, no, I do no. not. <laughs> like, I, 
I'm terrified. Like I want this. I don't want this money. I don't, I can't be in charge of losing that money. And so people are really nervous all the time. Were you nervous? Well, I mean, that nervousness is contagious because, you know, if they're like, what's the purpose of this scene? I'm like, I don't know. It's kind of funny and weird. And I thought it'd be cool. And they're like that. We can't build that. We can't do this. We can't have this. We can't have this in a book. If I'm like, there's two brothers. No, there's just one brother. I didn't save anybody any money, <laughs> you know, but every decision like that in a movie saves money. And so it's nerve wracking. And then also it's you're you can't possibly be in charge of it all. Yeah. Even filmmakers who say they're in charge of it all aren't really in charge of it all. And so there's a gazillion people working on the movie and they're all and and everyone in charge is scared. So that's kind of the situation with movies and TV. It's hard. As the writer, as the artist behind the work, there's a lot that I imagine is not preserved. And there's a lot of intricacy and maybe nuance that can kind of like make a book that they can't include. I mean, it's absolutely a whole different medium. And the script is really important in a movie, but it's certainly not the only thing. You know, and when you think about movies that you've loved, there's often some shot or there's some performance, there's some musical moment even, you know, that they're all participating in this. And so it's, it's hard. It's a big challenge. As it got closer to release, what are you thinking about this, this movie? Like, what are you thinking? What I hoped for with the movie was just that people would like it. You know, I remember when I was young and I went to see movies that were disappointing. That was always like heavy on my heart, kind of. I think that's especially true for books to movies where it's like, yeah, like you sure. have yeah. an audience that loves, loves, loves the book. And they have this picture in their mind of what that movie looks like. And it is so hard to achieve that picture. That's what I hope for. I mean, I've met so many people who are like, oh, my God, my family watched that every year or just like, you know, my brother and I hung out all the time watching it all. We watch it over and over and over again. And uh, I think that's cool. I think that's the kind of impact you want from that kind of movie. It's crazy to think that in 99, you were completely broke. And then like four or five years later, you have a movie made about the book you wrote. Like, yeah. were you did like, did you ever like reflect on like how, like how quickly it seemed all this came? Uh, it was really, really crazy. In 1998, I got married. And I was super broke in 1999. I got the $40,000 for four books. I got half of that up front. I was overjoyed. So 1999, like $20,000. I was like, Oh my God, that's amazing. Uh, in 2000, my wife and I moved back to San Francisco from New York. And I remember that when we got to San Francisco, I was like, this is a really expensive city too. And I don't know if I can live here for the rest of my life. I grew up here and I'm really happy to be home, but I want to remind myself that I might not be able to do it. And we, we got a new car. It was the first time I'd ever owned a new car. That was our, that was 2000. In 2001, we bought a house. Wow. So 98 was like no money and 2001 was house hunting. So it was a very crazy. Yeah. I, you know, I don't want to associate it as something negative. It was obviously like a super blessing, 
but it was very fast and very confusing. And so when people were like, this must be the best time in your life, I was like, kinda, it's just a little roller coastery. Uh, and yeah, so it was, uh, it was a blessing for sure, but it was pretty crazy. How are you, how are you thinking about your next projects? Like, obviously you have the series, but there's probably other ideas that you want to explore at some point. So like, is there more pressure because now you need to follow up this series with something like even better to keep relevance or is there less pressure? Cause it's like, now I can just, I, I have enough money in the bank or, or have enough credibility. I can just focus on the stories that interest me. Like where, where's like, the, what's the mix of emotions and the, the thoughts of how you're going to move forward into the future after this, this massive success? Um, there's pressure, but I think for me, the joy is to try to get away from that pressure as much as possible. Like there's pressure. People are just like, Hey, we want you to do another fantastic thing. Let us know when you got it. But, um, it's not that interesting to me. I always want to be bigger. That wasn't, that's not, that's for me, that's not associated with like literature. The core of my experience of reading books is enthusiasm. I like to read, I like to read things that make me think that open my mind, blow my mind. Like that's what I like. And so that's what I want to do. And so every so often people will, uh, it can be affected by kind of the pressure of other people. You know, people will be like, wow, you haven't like done anything that's like been really big. Why don't you do this over here or something? And uh, I'll be like, oh, maybe I should. Is that what I'm supposed to be doing? And then I'll just have to be like, remember, you don't have to do anything. If you don't want to, this is the blessing of like being an artist. Like I bought the house. I live in the house now. Uh, like, uh, you know, I can't, uh, spend a gazillion dollars every day of my life or something. I can't live like a crazy billionaire, but, um, I can collaborate with artists on some strange book that very few people will know about. I can work on a play and, uh, put it up in a small theater. I can write a draft of a book and put it away for three years because it doesn't make any sense to me and come back to it. I can pursue these projects that I really like. And so there is pressure, but that pressure is really external. When I catch myself kind of falling for that pressure, I try to get away with it. I'm curious, like post series of unfortunate events, what has been your 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 favorite book or piece of material that you've worked on and in what ways did it differ from the writing process of the books before and in what ways was it similar? And also how do you find that thing that you, or, or I guess specifically for that, that work, like how did you find that, that topic? I just, in general, just pride doesn't feel like a great thing to attach myself to. And so I will say that for instance, when I was working on a Netflix show, one of the hardest parts was that I had to reread a series of unfortunate events. Like I, I had to t take them off the shelf and I had to read all 13 books to really remind myself of how the whole plot was shaped and all the stuff that I put in there. And it was like taking out my old yearbooks or something. It was really like, there was so much that I found embarrassing. There was so much that I wanted to change. That was, it was really hard. And I just don't sit around trying to think about what I'm proud about. I think about what I'm excited about. I'm always excited about what I'm working on. Um, yeah. So I'm finishing edits on a book. Now I'm working on a theater thing. That's really exciting. And 
I'm going to be in England next year to do research. What does that that research process look like? My research doesn't solve a problem for me. My research like brings me stuff. I just begin to think about something and then I try to get as many books often literally on my desk as I can. And I'm reading them and I'm taking notes and I'm reminding myself that I'm making a mess. I'm just like everything that is exciting. Let's think about Let's not decide, you know, there's nothing off the table. And then I start to write like a big, crazy first draft and try to figure out kind of the real shape of the story and what it is. I got stranded on a book. Uh, it was right before COVID. Like I, I read about 200 pages and then I suddenly realized something. That's not what I wanted to do. And so and then I was like, okay, you got to start over. And then COVID hit, which is like a horrible time to start over. Like I, so yeah. I just put the whole thing aside. I worked on other stuff. And then I was invited to England to go talk at this university. And someone I knew was there on a research fellowship. I was like, oh, I want that. I want (laughs) to have access to this library and read all this stuff and get this book back going. And so that's what I'm doing next year. So that's the kind of stuff that I am looking forward to. And it's cool that you actually get to like travel because of the, uh, because of the thing. Yeah. I think the process of a series of unfortunate events of having to write so many books in such a short period of time put slight curtailing on that. And so I'm ha- I'm super happy to do it now. Um, and also I had a moment once I was researching a book and so I was driving near the San Francisco airport. I was taking pictures of these like kind of depressing condo developments that are near the airport. Um, so I could have pictures about them. So when I wrote about it, I could think about it. And uh, then a friend of mine called who is also an author and she was on a Greek Island researching her books. And I was like, I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> like she's on a Greek Island and I'm like in this depressing condo thing. And part of her process is that she just goes someplace. She's like, Oh, this looks like a cool place to go. I'm going to go there. And I was like, I've never done that. And I was like, obviously, this is a way better thing because you were ending up on a Greek island and I'm ending up like near the airport. Something's gone wrong. And so I'm looking forward to going uh, to England and seeing and just using this library, which is pretty incredible. Where are you staying in England? Uh, well, it's the fellowship through Oxford University. So they give oh, you sorry. a little a little shack. Uh and I'm really looking forward to being away from all that's familiar to me and just being someplace new. As a writer, like it, it would be, I think, just so cool to explore the history. Like that's going to yeah. be so, so fun and interesting. Well, I'm very excited uh, for your research over there. Uh, I would love to, I, I think something, you know, like coming from someone who, who's written so much and accomplished so much, what advice would you give to writers who are at the beginning of their journey who maybe, you know, like are studying in school and are writing short stories, but maybe haven't started writing the novel or, or, but are, but are graduating or trying to think of like, okay, like what do I do with my life uh, as I'm going out into the world? I think to try to keep enthusiasm at the center of what it is that you're doing is really important. And when I talk to writers and uh, teach writing from time to time, I talk about making your own canon. What are the touchstones that are most important to you? What do you love? 
What's the thing, you know, what's the scene in the book that you wish you could put into your story? What's the, when you think of like, oh, I'm trying to write something scary. It's like, what book scared you that you can't stop thinking about? And to try to really attach yourself and study the stuff that you like best. And to, you know, go and try. Obviously, if you're young, you, there's a million things that you haven't tried yet and you want to try all those things too. But to just make sure that, like, you're, that it's enthusiasm that's the furnace of the building. It can't be what you think is important or what you think is going to sell or what somebody told you is cool or, like, you're like, oh, I like this, but I can't say that I like it for whatever reason. Like, you got to really live with the stuff that you love and be near it and try to figure out how it works. And that's going to help you the most is to remember that it's it starts with enthusiasm. Like, why do you want to be a writer? Anyone who's a writer? Because you read something that you loved. That's why. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Renee Buchanan, Sophia Donner, David Saidi, Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong. With support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Aiden Ashworth, Nikki Mukawa, Sylvie Wong, and Eric Menno. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany Dang, Yao Liu, and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.